God's people enjoy that? Amen. Amen. I did too. Thank God for the music here at this church. It's uh, absolutely over the top. I've enjoyed it immensely. Let me mention a couple of things. I brought a few materials with me in my meetings. I don't sell things. In fact, the money that comes in from this goes for my ministry to help young preachers with libraries and materials. But these are the things that have been just made an absolutely change in my thinking. I read this book in 1980. Other than the Bible, it's the greatest book I ever read. I've read it once a year for 43 years since then. It teaches a lot of what I taught this morning in the concept of, yes, Jesus is our strong tower. Jesus is our rock. But the greatest truth God ever taught me is that Christ is my life. In other words, I'm not only trusting him. Any demand on me is not a demand on me but the life of Christ that lives in me. I can't. He never said I could. He can. Always said he would. But I read this book in 1980. It's called Bone of His Bone. It's a little $10 book. Then this is a classic on repentance and revival. It is by Roy Hessian. He was from uh, England. He's now with the Lord. And then this book is an amazing book. Let me just say this real quickly. This guy was born in 1650 in Aberdeen, Scotland. His name was Henry Skugel. He was converted when he was about 10. Time he was 13, he could read the Greek New Testament. Time he was 15, he could read the Hebrew Old Testament. When he was 20, when he was 18, he was a pastor of a church, and then he also was a professor at the college. When he was 27, he wrote out these sermons called "The Life of God in the Soul of Man." That year he died. Now, in those days, they would duplicate that which was written in sermons that were written out. In the 1700s, Charles Wesley got a copy of these and said, for the first time, I understand that Christianity is not just believing objective facts, but it's a subjective experience with the living Christ living in me, life of God in the soul of man. He shared it with John. He and John then shared it with George Whitfield. Now, if you know anything at all about American history, and you should, they don't know much about it in D.C., but we ought to know something about it. And that is there were two men responsible for the first great awakening. One was Jonathan Edwards, and the other was Whitfield. Whitfield read these sermons, said this, reading these sermons, I was soundly converted. Now, some friends of mine have taken these sermons and put them in modern-day understanding and simple English, and it's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Why do I carry it? Because it's about the Christ life, and it's also, I'm in hopes that we might have a Whitfield. We need an awakening in this country. We've not had an awakening, an awakening since 1857. Now, I have two thumb drives, one has 80 hours of my preaching and teaching, Revelation, Romans 6, 7, 8, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews, uh, a series on the five major future events, the rapture, the judgment seat, the millennial reign. And then I have another thumb drive, has 40 hours, the last days series and a series on grace. 
But if you were to buy some of this, for instance, if you bought what's on this on CD, it would be over $1,000. But you can get this for 40 and get a book free. And so it's actually $30, and you get 80 hours worth of teaching on a flash drive. I think it would be helpful to you. If you want to see me after the service, and I'll be glad to help you. If you have a credit card, I can take that. But it's not so much to uh, do anything except help you. It really is. That's my motive and my intention. Now, you say, well, uh, have you done this for a long time? I have. And I really believe those who are hungry, and I find that women are. Men need help. You're too interested in killing a deer or something other than reading. You ought to be a reader. And you say, well, I'm, I'm just not a reader. Well, repent. Amen. Romans 12, 1 and 2, would you stand with me for the reading of his word? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Actually, we could translate it this way. The least you can do. Or your act of worship. By the way, Giving God your body may be the least you can do, but it's the most you can do. Verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lord, thank you for your word. God, enlighten us. In the inner man, break us in our spirit, fill us with your spirit, and God, may you be glorified, God, as only you can be, as your word is preached, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to preach tonight concerning the will of God. You say, is that the main subject of this text? Well, actually, the way this text reads it reads like a mathematical problem. If you were to read this in the Greek, you have really three conditional Greek clauses. It reads like this. If this is true, and this is true, and this is true, this will be true. It reads like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll clear a highway and shove you down the road. In other words, the will of God, if you meet the conditions, pursues you. I like what Oswald Chambers said. When you're rightly related to Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, you are the will of God. So as we think about the will of God tonight and God's plan for us and us cooperating with him in it, my outline's pretty simple. Motivation plus presentation plus transformation equals the will of God. Motivation, presentation, transformation, equals the will of God. 
Now, first of all, motivation. Look at verse 1. I beseech you. I come alongside you. I come to encourage you. I entreat you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Let me read it where you can understand it. I'm taking for granted that you've studied the previous 11 chapters and that you've learned in the previous 11 chapters about the mercies of God and that's going to motivate you for life. You know, God just assumes some things. God assumes if he gave you himself, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, that you're going to be in the Bible and the Holy Spirit's going to teach you the Bible. Boy, he assumed a lot based on what some people really say that they have. Because a lot of people who say that they have the Holy Spirit living in them and they've been converted are deceived. Why? Because they don't have a hunger for the Bible. I just ask you a question tonight. I'm pretty observant. If you didn't bring a Bible, what's wrong with you? Now, don't get upset with me. But if you're going to be in, in the midst of expository preaching, it doesn't matter what I say. If it's not in the book, the book is what matters. The best thing can be said about a preacher is he said what the Bible said. Now, the mercies of God, what did you learn in the first 11 chapters? Well, you learned that you're a pretty bad sinner. You found that out in chapter 2 and 3. You found out in chapter 1, because most of your Gentiles, beginning at verse 18, that all Gentiles are sinners. Chapters 2 and 3, you found out that all Jews are sinners. And then you come to the conclusion that whether you be a Gentile or a Jew, you've offended God with your sin. And all you had to do is just be born. Because not only what you do is wrong, who you are is wrong. Then in chapters 4 and 5, you find out that you can be justified by faith. David was, Abraham was, and you can be. And then you find out in 6, 7, and 8 that the second aspect of salvation is sanctification. And you realize that you participated in six in the death, burial, resurrection. And you go to Ephesians and find out you even participated in the ascension. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, you died. You say, now wait a minute, preacher. I didn't live 2,000 years ago. Well, in God's mind, he knew that you would 2,000 years after Jesus died so God allowed you to die 2,000 years ago before you were so that when you'd be, you could get on the death that you died before you were so you could be different now in who you are now. And so that's what you find out in 6. Most people don't know anything about it. You say, what book teaches that? This book right here is where I learned that, that his death was your death. See, we know that Jesus died for our sins but some of us are in the dark concerning our death with him. That's why when you really get born again, you attend your funeral. Your life is over. And if you've not attended your funeral, 
You don't understand sanctification. Romans 8, 19 references to the Holy Spirit. Not one in six, not one in seven, but 19 in eight. And so the mercies of God motivate you. Therefore, you come to church not because you have to. You come to church because you want to. You don't read your Bible because you have to. You read your Bible because you want to. You pursue holiness of life not because you have to. You want to. God's changed you want to. He's motivated you with grace. Now, how would I define grace? Jesus. You say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I'm saved by grace through faith. Then why do you sing Jesus saves? Grace is Jesus. Now, where do you find that? You find it in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live what? Soberly, righteously, and godly. What teaches you to live soberly, righteously, and godly? Grace. Who is grace? It is Christ who appeared in verse 11. See, Titus 2, 11 through 14 is one Greek sentence. And the subject is grace, but the person of grace is Jesus. That motivates you. He is in you the grace of God. By the way, he's your faith. He's your righteousness. He's your joy. He's your long-suffering. It's all in him. Everything that you have came in one package, a person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do you find motivation, I need to move on if I'm going to get this sermon in. The second thing is presentation. Now, if you got the right motivation, there'll be presentation. Now, let me read it to you like it reads in the original. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. But go back to verse 1. By the mercies of God, ye present. Now, that's in a Greek tense, which means, listen to this carefully, a once and for all presentation not to be repeated again. Now, I'm going to say something, and you may disagree with it, and you need to think about what I'm fixing to say because if you really understand this text, I'm right and you're wrong. And that is the Bible doesn't teach rededication. The Bible teaches continuous, conspicuous repentance. Now, I want to ask you a question. I just want to borrow your mind for a minute. Does that be all right? If Christ gave his life to you when you were saved, three times in the Scriptures, Jesus said for you to hate your life. I know preachers say, come give your life to Jesus, but that's not biblical from God's point of view. There's two different Greek words for life. One is the word psychos, and the other is the Greek word zoe. When Jesus used the word psychos, he said for you to hate your life. When Jesus said, I'll give you life, it's zoe. Both are used in John 12, 25. Now, if Christ gives you his life, does he need to rededicate his life? Absolutely not. So he provided a cross where you what? Died, Romans 6, 6, Galatians 2, 20. So if you understand Bible salvation, you died when Jesus died. He gave you his life. If he gave you his life, he does not need to rededicate. But he provided a cross where you died, 
and therefore you need to know everyday mortification. And that is being put to death even though you're dead. Romans 8, 13, what does it say? It says the Holy Spirit needs to mortify every deed of your body. What does Colossians 3 say? The same thing, mortification. So therefore, it's in a Greek tense, which means a once and for all presentation. Now let me tell you what it means here in the context of this text. He's saying that the end result is the will of God. But you've got to be motivated by the mercies of God. And motivated by the mercies of God, every day you give up the right to yourself. Romans 6.13, you yield the members of your body to righteousness. How many of you, look, you kind of look at me like you're confused? Is this confusing? Is this too deep for you to understand? I want to register with you. I'm not here to impress you with information. What happens is God wants access to you. In order for you to know the will of God, he's basically saying present your body. Here's what he's communicating. Get a blank sheet of paper and sign it. So, I would say to your search group who's looking for a pastor, you'll not know the will of God for this church unless you give up any idea of what your will is. So, you have to sign a blank sheet of paper. Now, here's what some, I can already tell some of you thinking this way. Who am I to sign a blank sheet of paper and trust God who's planned my life before I were to plan my life after I am? What if he planned your life before you were and he's too loving to be unkind and whatever plans he has for you, they're for good and for his glory so why not sign a blank sheet of paper and say, God, whatever it takes for my will to break, I'm giving myself unconditionally, unreservedly to you. Now, I was a pastor for 25 years, and I still counsel with people. But most people, here's how they want counseling. Now, here's what I'm doing, preacher. Is that all right? So here's what I'm trying to say to you. You'll not know what God has for you until you're willing to do anything he has. So have you given your children to the Lord that way? Or do you have expectations whereby you'll be disappointed and be bitter in life? Motivation, presentation. <coughs> then there's transformation. By the way, transformation doesn't take place until there's the right motivation.
plus presentation, but then there's transformation. Look at verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. Be ye what? It's the Greek word metamorphosis. I know you think you're something, but you're just a worm. You're a worm that is being transformed into a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. That word's used four times in the New Testament. You say, where's that word used? Well, I'm glad you'd like to know. It's used twice concerning Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, he was 100% God, but he was 100% man. But he lived as 100% man and not as 100% God, even though he's always 100% God. But all of a sudden on the Mount of Transfiguration, God bled through man. And they saw him metamorphosis right before their very eyes. And he was like a bright light. He was transfigured. Now, basically it reads this way. Once you're motivated and you give God yourself, sign a blank sheet of paper, have no conditions, and then you get transformed. How does that happen? The fourth place it's used is the key. Turn with me to the place, 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now, let me give you the context of 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul giving us an understanding of the new covenant. He's saying that the old covenant calls Moses' glory to fade. But the new covenant has permanent glory because you're being transformed. Now, most people quote verse 17 and quote it out of context. You ever heard anybody say in a worship service, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty? It has nothing to do with the worship service. Here's what it has to do with. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. simply means if the Spirit of God lives in you, He's liberating you from you because you are your problem. I know you think you're hot, but you're not. And God's always... God's always delivering you from you. Now, how does he do that? Verse 18, he tells us, Behold, we all. Now, I'm a southerner. What does we all mean? That means we all. With open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. Let me translate. You look in the laver. You've already been to the cross at Calvary, the brazen altar. Now you go to the laver, which is the mirror of God's word. Takes us back to the tabernacle. Takes us to the book of James. So the glass is the word of God. You look into the word of God and what do you see? You see the glory of God. And you are changed or you're being changed or transformed into the same image, which means 
that the way that you get transformed is by meditating and saturating and obeying the Word of God. That's why who you get as your pastor is so important because he's got to be able to exegete and explain to you the Scriptures and encourage you to get into the Word yourself because you are maturing and developing as you are calculating and memorizing and meditating on Scripture. That's why the Bible says, hide the Word in your heart and you won't sin against God. How do you develop as a believer? The Word. Not by sitting in your chair at the house with the flipper. You said, hey, preacher, you're, you're just adamant about this. I really am. David said you meditate on the Word both day and night. The Word. You've got to be in the Word, and the Word's got to be in you. Here's how Weirdsby says you translate verse 18. When the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, he, by the Spirit of God, is transformed into the image of God himself, even glory unto glory, God is transforming you into himself. Can I ask you a question? In the sanctification process, how far are you along? Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. I'm clean, John 15, through the word. Meditating on the word. Now, most of you think just reading and studying the Bible's enough. That just gets you started. You got to learn how to meditate. Chew the cud. Soak yourself with the word. Stay in the book. Well, it brings me to my last point. I have one more point. Because basically, here's what happens. If you're motivated and you present your body and you are being transformed, and that's a process. You're a work in process. Somebody ought to wear a T-shirt. Pray for me. God's not through with me yet. And God's always developing you in the inner man. Now, that doesn't mean, see, I preach both truths. Christ is in you in his fullness. But yet Christ, as he gets access to your redeemed humanity, he is being conformed in you as he's transforming you. So you have both truths. You have Christ in you, but you have Christ being formed in you. You say, I don't understand that. I don't either. You say, why would you preach something you don't understand? I preach a whole lot of stuff I don't understand. See, God, His Word is amazing. Now, lastly, what happens? The will of God hunts you down. Look what happens in verse 2. You find that good, the word good means good in and of itself. Perfect, that means complete. You find that good. Let's read it. What is that good you prove, put to the test? What is that good and acceptable? 
means well-pleasing and perfect will of God. In other words, the word of God smacks you in the face. Kisses you. You say, how does that happen? Well, you're in the word and Remus from the Logos jump up and hug you. You burned about one of your children. You meditate on the word. God gives you a promise. He's giving you a little sugar. That's why the Bible says kiss the sun. That's worship, kissing the sun. Now, let me give you a quick lesson. How would you say that you can know the will of God? Here it is. You'd say it's a word from the word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But it's a different Greek word. The word for the word is logos, but yet when the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word, it's not logos, it's rhema. When the Bible says you stand against the devil with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, it's not logos, it's rhema. When the Bible says that Jesus spoke to the devil and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema. Now, we let the charismatic scare us off here. What is a rhema? It's a word from the word. So here's the basic thing. If this church is going to be led, then you don't do it in a humanistic way. You have to hear God. All that matters is hearing God. I mean, if you didn't hear God marry who you married, you're stuck. Or if you make decisions, remember what I said this morning? What is faith? My response to what God initiates. Faith doesn't start with you. Faith starts with God. The second thing, how do you know God's will? Subjective peace. How else do you know God's will? Your circumstances. How else do you know God's will? Checking with God-given authorities. But none of those are the ultimate. Psalm 37, 4, what does it say? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you. Come on, anybody know the Bible? All right, let me tell you how that reads with this verse. Come to the place that you give God your body, sign a blank sheet of paper, and you're in the Word, and everything's right between you and God and you and others. What makes you think what you think is not what God thinks? as long as it doesn't go against his word. But if it contradicts his word, then your thinking's wrong. That's why you have have a job description of what a pastor looks like in 1 Timothy 3. And if a person doesn't meet those qualifications, in other words, it is God living his life through us. See, I used to think that knowing the will of God that simple couldn't be right. But if you have a desire for something and the Bible does not 
teach otherwise. What makes you think what you think is not what God thinks. Now, here's the thing about a church. If God's thinking through you that way and thinking through the leadership that way, then your thinking's going to be together. See, it's important. Just being here, I was here last year and here back this year. I'm here to tell you, there are so many young people here. There are so many young couples here. And teaching, a pastor teacher, shallow evangelism, It's not the answer. But the answer is not only winning them, but teaching them to live by the life of Christ. And a good pastor works himself out of a job because he teaches you to let Jesus live through you and you don't need him. You say, I'm a dependent Baptist. I am too. I'm dependent on Jesus. I want to ask you a question. I'm finished. Who tonight we don't have any paper down here. But let's have an invisible piece of paper here. Who tonight, with the pen of their will, will come or stand and sign a blank sheet of paper? Are you willing to have no condition? give up the right to everything even yourself let's stand together this altar's open if you've never truly given yourself fully and freely to Christ but if you want to sign that blank sheet of paper on your knees you and your wife together or just you in your heart, why don't you come right now as Matt leads us?